Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Today is Teacher Appreciation Day here in Puerto Rico. In fact, all week was Teacher Appreciation Week. So today was the end of that week, and all the teachers in Puerto Rico got the day off uh, in honor of teacher appreciation. In fact, yesterday was actually Student Appreciation Day, and the students got a half a day, which meant the teachers, of course, also got an extra half a day off. But, of course, a lot of the parents don't necessarily like it when the teachers get a day off because now their kids are not in school And so they need to take care of them. So a lot of people didn't work today in Puerto Rico because if you were a teacher, you didn't work. And if you had kids in school, well, now your kids weren't in school. And if you didn't have childcare, well, you had to take the day off of work too uh, to watch your kids. But of course, you know, all of this is about politics. I mean, why do we need Teacher Appreciation Day? Why do teachers need to get another paid holiday? I mean, teachers, after all, have more paid vacations than any other occupation. I went over this when I talked about Ray Dalio, and he said that he thought teachers were underpaid, and I disagreed. I think, you know, in general, they're probably among the most overpaid workers in the country. Not that there aren't individual teachers who I think are excellent and who are underpaid, uh, but the vast majority are overpaid. And one of the ways they're overpaid is with excess uh, time off. And uh, no reason for uh, them to get this day off. I mean, we can appreciate teachers without giving them the day off. In fact, I think teachers are better appreciated when they're in the classroom, when they're teaching. I think students can show their appreciation better when the teachers are on the job. Look, you know, we have Mother's Day. We've got Father's Day. They're on Sundays. I mean, who knows? Some politician will probably move to move them to Monday so we can have another day off. But we manage to honor parents, fathers and mothers uh, without a day off. I mean, we can honor teachers the same way. I mean, so it could be on a Saturday or Sunday. But again, the entire week was Teacher Appreciation Week. And so they were appreciated uh, on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday when they worked full days. Uh, They don't need an extra day of appreciation. Again, it's all politics, right? Because if you promise to give the teachers another day off, all the teachers are going to vote for you, obviously. And so that's why this stuff happens. Anyway, of course, it's not just Teacher Appreciation Day. It's also Jobs Friday. This is the day, the first Friday of the month, when we get the non-farm payroll number. I don't know if the markets anticipate it more or Donald Trump, because, of course, he's ready to send out a tweet when we get a better than expected number. And that's about what happened today. We got another number that was better than expected. Certainly the headline number, they were looking for a increase of 180,000 jobs, which would have been a bit of a reduction over last month's 196,000 jobs, which was revised down slightly to 189,000. But we ended up getting 263,000 jobs. So another number with a two-handle, much bigger number than had been anticipated. And the unemployment number also surprisingly dropped two-tenths from 3.8% to 3.6%. And Hispanic unemployment actually hit an all-time record low. I forget the rate, but it is a low. In fact, I expected Donald Trump to treat about that because obviously he's being accused of being a racist. And clearly, if he can show that, well, look, Spanish uh, Hispanic unemployment is at an all-time record low. I mean, how are my policies racist if we have a record low in unemployment among the Hispanics. But he did, you know, tweet about the jobs numbers and the low unemployment numbers. But again, you know, I reminded Trump, not that he actually 
um, you know, ever reads my tweets, probably he gets so many because uh, he has so many, uh, you know, people commenting on his tweets. But whenever he brags about how low the unemployment rate is, the official rate, I always remind him, wait a minute, you are the person who accused these numbers of being frauds, fakes, phonies, a scam, right? Donald Trump as a candidate was very critical of Barack Obama's phony recovery, mainly because Obama was hiding behind what Trump said were fraudulent statistics. Well, these are the same statistics that Donald Trump is now embracing, the same statistics that he criticized. So I guess the president no longer cares about all of the discouraged workers who are no longer looking for work. He doesn't care about all the people who are working part time, but would prefer to work full time, but they can't find a full time job. So they've settled for part time jobs. These are the people who are not included in that 3.6% unemployment rate. The president cared about those people when he was a candidate. And obviously he couldn't care less about them now that he's the president because he doesn't talk about that issue any longer. But obviously, you know, 263,000 is a larger number. Everybody is getting excited. Oh, this validates uh, the idea that the economy is strong. But of course, we've had plenty of strong jobs reports uh, over the last several years. In fact, Obama had many jobs reports where we had numbers well north of 200,000. It's the same economy. Nothing has actually changed. In fact, if you look at some of the other numbers, look at average hourly earnings, and there uh, the number was just 0.2 increase, which is you know minimal increase in average hourly earnings. Remember, it is not adjusted for inflation. That is just a nominal number. Look at the average work week. It actually ticked down from 34.5 hours to 34.4 hours. Look at labor force participation. You know, there's been a lot of talk uh, about how a lot of people have come off the sidelines because of the Trump economy, right? There's, there's so much opportunity. The economy is booming that all of these workers who were, you know, not in the workforce, right, who had been discouraged in the past, they have entered the workforce because of all these great employment opportunities. Well, when Donald Trump took office, he started office January 20th of 2017. So almost the end of January. At the end of January in 2017, the labor force participation rate was 629 it is now 62.8. So it's actually slightly lower now. I mean, I don't think it's significant that it's slightly lower. What's more significant is that it's not higher, that there are not, there has not been an increase. Despite all the talk about all these workers coming off the sidelines that are now in the game, right? All these workers who are taking advantage of the opportunities in a booming economy, none of it's true. The labor force participation rate has not moved up at all since Donald Trump has uh, has become president. I mean, probably the only place it has moved up is among older people, right? And that's where the labor force participation should be going down, right? People in their 70s and 80s should be enjoying their golden years, and instead they're working at the golden arches. That's what's going on. So you have older people who are too broke to retire and younger people that can't get jobs. And that's still the case today, despite all of the, the hype about this booming job market that supposedly exists. And in fact, a lot of people have now come out uh, about the GDP numbers. I talked about the GDP numbers a couple of podcasts ago about how it seemed to be a fluke. And now I've read a lot more about this, where other people are looking at the inventories, looking at the the impact of trade as these one-off things, and looking beneath the surface to see an economy that is actually quite a bit weaker than the official statistics. And then, of course, you've got the ridiculously low GDP deflator that should completely reverse next quarter. But also, you know, I read an interesting article that somebody pointed out because there was this big build in inventories. And that was one of the reasons for the higher than expected GDP number. But within the same report, right, uh, there was a drop in production and there was a lower than expected trade deficit, meaning we were importing less. Well, if we were producing less 
and importing less, what exactly went into the inventory build? Because in order to build inventory, you have to have stuff to inventory. And stuff either has to be produced domestically or imported. But if we're not importing more and we're not producing more, then how are we stockpiling more? So there are a lot of numbers in the report that just didn't make sense. And that's why I would expect some revisions uh, of those numbers and to see a lot of it unwound in the, uh, the coming quarters. But also looking at the jobs that were created. Again, we are not creating the type of jobs that we need. Right? Donald Trump promised a manufacturing renaissance. Right, We're going to bring back manufacturing to the United States. We only added 4,000 jobs in manufacturing. That's nothing. Right? This, this is another myth that we have this vibrant manufacturing sector, that this protectionism is working, that the tariffs are working. They're not working. Manufacturing has not been revived. It is simply a, a matter of PR. They just keep talking about it as if it's actually happening. And so people believe it. Now, retail, I mean, again, these retail jobs are not great jobs either, but we lost 12,000 of those. And this is the third consecutive month where retail jobs have been lost. And again, that is a more ominous sign. I've been talking about that as uh, you know, retailers are shutting down and going out of business. And not only, of course, is this bad for employment in that sector, but it's really going to be bad for commercial real estate because as a lot of these uh, stores are shutting down and laying people off, that's a lot of landlords that aren't getting checks. And this is going to be part of the coming uh, real estate collapse. It's going to be particularly hard felt in the commercial sector. And of course, we got more economic data that came out today, right? Everything else normally gets lost in the headlines because everybody focuses on the jobs numbers. We did get the international trade deficit uh, that came out today. Again, a huge number, just not as huge as everybody thought. The uh, previous month was also not as huge as people thought. We had uh, 70.9 billion was the deficit in February, and the consensus was for an increase to 74 billion, and we only increased to 71.4 billion. So we had a smaller than expected increase in the trade deficit. Still a horrific trade deficit. Nobody talks about it. In fact, I think we always get a trade number on the same day that we get a jobs number. Maybe that's by design because you know no one wants anybody paying attention to those terrible trade numbers. Although most people don't even think it's a problem anymore. I've talked about this on this podcast before. Once upon a time, the trade deficit was the most important release of the month. It was the most anticipated and it was the most market moving. And a bad trade deficit or a big trade deficit was bad and a smaller trade deficit was good. Of course, we always had a trade deficit. We never had a surplus. I can't ever remember a month where America had a trade surplus. I mean, it did. I just wasn't alive back then. Um, or maybe I was just a little kid. But certainly since I've been in the investment business, uh, it's always about the size of our trade deficit. But if the deficit came out Bigger than expected, it was a huge mover, particularly in the currency markets, but that would affect the bond market, the precious metals market, the stock market. Uh, but now it's a yawn. I mean, nobody even cares because the deficits are now so big. I mean, they're so much bigger now than what everybody was worried about back then, like back in the 1980s. They're just so much bigger than anybody could have imagined that people just stopped worrying about it. That's the same thing with the budget deficits, right? People who used to be concerned about budget deficits and the national debt when they were much smaller are just not concerned anymore because they've gotten so big and we haven't had a, a reckoning that people just assume that it's never going to happen. But that is a big mistake to make. I mean, of course, obviously, there has been uh, a, a problem. There has been a price that's been paid for the big budget deficits, the big trade deficits. That's why we have this slow growth economy. That's why we have this widening chasm between the rich and the poor. Uh, you know, that's why we're not seeing real gains in the standard of living of average Americans. That's why average Americans are f falling further and further behind. Uh, they're living increasingly paycheck to paycheck and they can't even make it on their paycheck. So they have to, uh, you know, resort to debt and, and, and leverage. All of this is a byproduct of the Federal Reserve uh, preventing market forces from restructuring the economy so that we can produce more, so that we can invest more, so that we can increase the productivity of our workers. Instead, we're pursuing policies that continue to inflate bubbles, and they also manifest themselves 
in larger trade deficits and larger budget deficits. Just because we haven't had the ultimate collapse is no reason to now no longer worry and just assume that these trees are going to grow to the sky. They're not. At some point, they are going to reach their peak. But we got other numbers out today. We got some inventory numbers, and we did see a decline there. We're starting to see that. But I think the biggest number that we got that was a negative was the ISM manufacturing number. That was supposed to be at 57.3, which actually would have been improvement from the prior month, which was 56.1. Instead, we dropped down to 55 and a half. And that is the lowest level in about two years for that index. So that's about how long uh, Trump has been president. So now all of a sudden we've got the ISM service index uh, dropping to the lowest level pretty much since Trump's been in office. So a lot of this, his the hype is beginning to unravel, but you know the markets again are continuing to ignore it and they're living in this fantasy of this booming economy, which is obviously, uh, you know, kept going by Wall Street or by the Trump administration that wants to continue to advance this narrative. I mean, Trump, for obvious reasons, because he needs the economy to be good or he needs the perception of the economy to be good, to be reelected. And of course, Wall Street wants everybody to think the economy is good. So they think that corporate earnings will keep growing. And so they think that people will keep buying stocks. But we also had, you know, other data, other news stories that came out during the week. Uh, that should rain on that parade. We had April auto sales were down 6.1%. This is the biggest drop in in a month in eight years for auto sales. Look at what's happening with luxury home prices getting clobbered on the West and East Coast. You know, this is the biggest year-over-year decline we just had in luxury homes since 2010. And of course, 2010 was the tail end of the Great Recession, right? Real estate prices were still falling back then. And now we're, you know, we've had the worst year over year uh, decline since 2010. And you know what? We're just getting started. It's going a lot lower. And it's not just the luxury end of the market. I mean, the luxury is maybe the canary in the coal mine, but the entire real estate market. And of course, there's still pockets of strength. There's still places in the country where real estate prices have been rising. But I think in general, real estate prices are going to be falling uh, during this next recession. Also, we got the jobless claims that came out on Thursday. Remember, I spoke about the last week's jobless claims on my last podcast because we got a big spike in jobless claims, a much higher number than had been expected. We had 230,000 claims. We had been well below 200,000, uh, which was the lowest number you know, since going back into the 1960s sometime. Uh, But so the markets were expecting the unemployment claims to fall back from that level. They were looking for 215,000. And instead, we we held steady. We printed another 230,000 claims. So again, this is some evidence here. We'll see. It's a little bit premature to say it emphatically. I think if we move above 250,000, which is a level I don't think we've been above in years, I think if we can move there, then that could be a pretty good sign that we've seen a bottom in claims and we're going a lot higher. And again, as I said in the last podcast, uh, these jobs numbers are much more of a lagging indicator. Most of the forward-looking indicators are showing economic weakness. Now, you know, the stock market initially reacted to the uh, non-farm payroll number that was higher than expected by rising. You know, we had a big jump in the stock market. And my initial thought was that we were going to sell off because I do think that now that the Fed uh, kind of changed the game a little bit on Wednesday, and I went over this on my podcast on that day, but the entire rally, and we've had a pretty big rally so far this year, but it's all been about the Fed. It was all about the Fed changing the expectations that the market had from a tightening uh, to a neutral or, in fact, an easing bias, bias. In fact, if you look at the markets, the markets were beginning to correctly price in a rate cut by the Fed. And so I think that now, as a result of Powell's talk, Powell basically walked back his prior dovishness and got the markets maybe to believe that we're not going to get rate cuts, we're not going to get hikes either, but we're just going to be stable. And I think that might be enough to change the dynamic so that the stock market now starts to sell off 
because now the Fed is actually more hawkish. See, what stopped the stock market sell-off was the Fed going from being hawkish to being less hawkish or being dovish, right? That's what really was the catalyst for this rally. But now if there's another perception that the Fed is not quite as dovish as we thought, well, that could take the wind out of the stock market sale and start the market to go down again. And I believe that that's what's going to happen. And I've said from the beginning that the markets are going to make new lows because just not raising rates in the future is not enough to offset the damage already done by the rate hikes of the past. What the Fed is going to have to do the next time the market goes down is it's going to actually have to cut rates. I mean, that's what the Fed is going to be forced to do. And of course, you know, Donald Trump will probably come out and say, well, you see, had they only cut rates sooner, uh, this would have been avoided, right? This recession might have been avoided or this bear market would have been avoided had the Fed done what I wanted, which was to cut rates sooner. And the fact that they waited so long and then cut it, cut rates anyway, well, this kind of proves that it wasn't my fault, right? That's going to be Trump's uh, game plan for the election is to blame the recession on the Fed, but the Democrats are going to blame the recession on Trump. They're going to blame the recession on the tax cuts and deregulation. And I think that is going to play better on the polls. I think running against the tax cuts and the budget deficits and the giveaways for the rich, I think that will you know, be a better strategy than just running against the Fed because most voters you know, are clueless about the Fed. But I do think that there were some FOMC members that were a little cognizant of the fact that the market did sell off. I mean, it didn't get completely killed uh, on Wednesday. In fact, this is the second week that the Dow Jones actually went down. I mean, it's, it's, we're down two weeks in a row. Now, it's not significant. I think the cumulative decline during those two weeks is just 50 points. But this is the first time that's happened this year. Now, of course, the, the broader averages are higher, right? I mean, it's only the Dow that went down and only went down by a little bit. But maybe we would have had a bigger sell-off today had it not been for some reassuring words uh, by other Fed officials, I think in particular by Clarita, who came out and kind of walked back the the idea that inflation, you know, could surprise by, you know, going up or going back down to up to 2% because he was talking about how inflation uh, remains subdued. And in fact, what he was talking about, and I've heard this from other other Fed officials too, is the idea about managing inflation expectations, that it's not enough that we have a 2% inflation, but we need to make sure that investors expect inflation to be at least 2%, right? That somehow if expectations come down, if people expect that, okay, inflation's 2% now, but we think it might be 1.5% in a year or two, that somehow that's a bad thing. So that not only does the Fed have to make sure that inflation is at 2%, but the Fed needs to make sure that people expect inflation to stay at 2%. Now, why they have to do that is beyond me, right? But apparently, this is what they need. Now, of course, this is more just gobbledygook, right? The Fed just wants to create inflation. They want a reason not to raise interest rates. So they're making this nonsense up. But what they're saying is that if people expect the economy to slow down, they would expect the inflation rate to come down. And that's a problem for the Fed because the Fed doesn't want inflation expectations to go down. It wants inflation expectations to stay up. And so what Clarita was saying is that this is another reason that we want to have inflation above 2%, that we want to go about an average because we want to make sure that people don't have an expectation of too little inflation so that maybe running inflation at two and a half percent for a while would, would would help keep expectations up because if we get inflation up to two and a half percent and then people start thinking about a recession because the fed acknowledges look we're always going to have recessions we're going to have business cycles and people are going to start to think oh in the next recession inflation is going to come down and it'd be below two percent so if we can get inflation above two percent now then maybe the expectations for the next inflation will simply be that inflation falls back down to two percent so somehow this is supposed to be a good thing but all this is doing is basically letting the markets know that we're going to have a lot more inflation but it is not going to be a good thing. And by the way, when you have a recession, to have less inflation is a good thing. In fact, you know, without the Fed, maybe prices would fall during a recession like they did during the Depression. 
one of the reasons that the depression was not worse was because prices went down, not up. I mean, you know, if things are bad, if you've lost your job, isn't it a positive if, you know, the cost of food goes down? You know, if the cost of, uh, you know, uh, your utilities go down, right? If, if the cost of living goes down when your income goes down, that's a, that's a good thing. That's an offsetting thing. I mean, that was why one of the stupidest things that they did during the Great Depression was destroy food to try to make food more expensive. I mean, here you have people that are supposedly, you know, out of work, right? And you're trying to increase the cost of food. You're trying to make it more expensive for people to eat. I mean, talk about a misguided policy in bad times to try to make eating more expensive. Now, of course, they were saying, well, this is good for the farmers, right? We want to make sure that the farmers uh, can make more money. But meanwhile, the farmers' cost of living was going down too because it just wasn't just food prices that were falling. Lots of prices were falling, and that made the depression less depressing. Of course, you know, it wouldn't have been a depression at all had it not been for all of the misguided policies of Hoover, which were then adopted and expanded by Roosevelt. But I really don't have time to get into that, you know, tangent on, on this podcast. The, the only point that I wanted to make is that if, you know, we're going to have a recession it's better if we have less inflation than more inflation. But the idea that every time we have a recession, that's going to guarantee that we have less inflation, that's wrong. Because I've been talking about the fact that the next recession we're going to have is going to be stagflation. It's going to be a recession with higher inflation because the increasing inflation trend is already there. And there is massive amounts of inflation baked into this pipeline. And the reason that inflation is going to explode in the next recession is because the dollar is going to tank. It is not going to rise like it did in 2008. It is going to fall. Again, the reason it rose in 2008 was because, A, it was at an all-time record low in 2008, uh, so it rose. But, B, the reason it rose was because everybody was convinced by the Fed that, uh, you know, quantitative easing was temporary, that um, the 0% interest rates were temporary. This was all an emergency. All this stuff would be unwound. There would be an exit strategy, right? It was all this nonsense. But when we have this next recession and the Fed was never able to normalize rates, it was never able to shrink its balance sheet. When the balance sheet explodes to new highs, when interest rates are back at zero and debt is off the charts, Nobody is going to believe this nonsense and everybody is going to run from the dollar. And this is going to be a huge positive, particularly for the emerging market economies, which are going to see tremendous relief because of the weak dollar. That is going to make it easier for them to service their dollar debts, to repay their debts. That's going to take all the pressure off their markets and their economies, off their currencies, and they're going to uh, you know, breathe a collective sigh of relief. So the world economy is going to pick up when the dollar tanks, and that means uh, demand for commodities and all sorts of goods is going to rise outside the United States just as it's declining inside the United States. So we are in a global economy and people keep thinking, well, if demand goes down, then prices are going to go down. Well, no, demand could go up outside the United States. We, we don't live in a vacuum. We have to compete with people all around the world. And what happens is on the domestic front, when the dollar tanks and the supply of imports declines because we can't afford to import as much, I mean, the the, the imports might cost the same, but we get less for the money that we spend because of the diminished value of the dollar. So what's happening is the domestic supply, the supply of goods in the U.S. actually is coming down. So if demand is falling, but supply is falling maybe even faster, then you can still have prices rising. So the Fed is totally wrong uh, in that the next recession means that we're going to have a reduction in inflation. This next recession is going to be accompanied by an acceleration of inflation and inflation expectations. The fact that they're low, the problem is they're too low. The problem is people are going to be hit with a lot of inflation that they did not expect, that they did not uh, factor in to their transactions, that was not factored into interest rates, right? If you have a lot of loans that were made 
based on the expectation of inflation that is much lower than it actually is, that has real implications in the market. What that means is that creditors take a huge loss because they didn't charge enough, they didn't price in enough inflation into their interest rates, which is going to be very bad for the banks, for the financials. Of course, it's a good thing if you're a debtor, right? If you borrowed money and somebody who loaned it to you didn't bake in enough protection from inflation, right? The biggest beneficiary of that is the government, right? Why does the government want inflation expectations to be low, right? Because the government wants to be able to borrow cheap. It seems ridiculous that the government would be trying to increase inflation expectations when that would simply increase the cost of funding the national debt. I guess the good news for the government is that people are so completely clueless. If people really understood how much inflation was coming, right? I mean, nobody would lend money to the U.S. government. And of course, the inflation was the increase in the money supply. That's already happened, right? That's what quantitative easing was all about. It was all inflation. But a lot of that money, as I've said, went into financial assets. We inflated stock prices. We inflated real estate prices. Of course, when that's happening, nobody is worried about it. Nobody thinks it's a problem. Of course, it never stops there. You know, it all ends up in consumer prices. That's where it's all going. That is the final resting place for all the inflations that governments and central banks have created. And this time, it's going to be no exception. Also, while I'm on the subject of the Fed, Stephen Moore had to withdraw his uh, nomination to be on the Federal Reserve Board. And I think the real catalyst for it was not the fact that he had supported the gold standard. And in fact, you know, obviously, Alan Greenspan was chairman of the Fed, and he supported the gold standard for a long time before he became Fed chairman. He had lots of writings. I mean, he authored Gold and Economic Freedom, right? That was a great article that was you know, part of Ayn Rand's uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. So he had a long paper trail of being in favor of a gold standard, and that didn't stop him from chairing the Federal Reserve. So I don't think that it was uh, the support of the gold standard uh, in the past that had doomed Stephen Moore's nomination. It really was just another uh, sacrifice on the altar of political correctness because they were going back over all of his uh, former writings, in particular, the ones that were you know, causing all the problem were things that he had written or said with respect to women and the pay gap, the gender pay gap uh, between women and men. And of course, much of the stuff that, that, that Steve said was true. And some of it was probably and obviously said uh, in humor, but obviously uh, people have no sense of humor when it comes to these politically uh, sensitive or politically correct issues. And if I, as I said many times on this podcast, there is no actual gender pay gap. I mean, yes, uh, I you know women in general in certain occupations on average will earn less money than men, but that's because they are making up the difference uh, with more flexible work schedules, uh, uh, not having to work as many hours uh, in the day or the week, not having to travel as much. And of course, women often interrupt their careers uh, for various reasons. So they move in and out of the workplace. And so that kind of knocks them off uh, the track, the same track that a lot of their male counterparts are on. Uh, but again, I've said in the past, if there really was this gender pay gap, right, if there really was, uh, if women really were doing the same work as men uh, for less pay, then everybody would hire women. I mean, why would you hire men if women will work cheaper? Employers are not idiots. Uh, but, you know, People don't want to say this. People don't want to admit this. And of course, everybody is forced to bow down on this altar and say, well, I think women should be paid the same as men for the same work. Well, that's not up to the government. And it's not always the same work that they're doing. Uh, and it's their pay is taking different forms. But I think um, one of the things that really got uh, the more critics upset was in particular, he was talking about in athletics, you know, hey, why should women be paid the same as men in athletics? Because there they're not doing equal work. And he's right. I mean, think about a uh, tennis. I mean, I watch a lot of tennis. And let's say you're watching the U.S. Open or you're watching the Wimbledon. The prize money is exactly the same. If you win Wimbledon, if you win women's, you're going to get paid exactly the same amount as if you win the men's. 
but they don't do the same work. The men play best out of five, right? The women play best out of three. So they don't play as much tennis. I mean, and that's the same thing throughout the entire tournament, right? If they're playing best of three and the men are playing best of five, right? The man who wins the trophy is going to play a lot more tennis. He's going to play a lot more games than the woman. So are they doing equal work? No, the guy is doing more work. He's on the court for longer hours, right? Yet he's not being paid anymore. I mean, why aren't men at Wimbledon complaining, I'm not getting paid enough, right? They should say, we need to get played per set, right? I'm doing more work than the women, but I'm getting paid the same, right? Now, I don't know why it is, but that's just how they do it. But obviously nobody is outraged by the fact that there is no equal pay in sports, uh, that there's unequal pay, that women are not working as hard and they're getting paid the same, which means there is a gender pay gap. And of course, I don't know, probably not just in tennis, there's probably other avenues of, of, of sports, but you know, Moore was pointing this out. It's a totally valid point, but of course now he gets crucified for it because it is not politically correct. You have to constantly pretend, right, that, you know, any difference in pay is wrong and that the government needs to stamp it out. Oh, I forgot another sport that um, Moore specifically wrote about had to do with basketball. And I think he was uh, referring to women's basketball and women basketball players get paid less than male basketball players, right? And so they're doing equal work, right? They're playing basketball. I guess the female basketball games are as long or the same amount of time as the male basketball games. Although I don't really know because I've never seen a professional female basketball game, which is part of the problem, right? Most men don't want to watch women play basketball. I mean, that is the reality. I mean, maybe if you dress them up in lingerie or something, more men would want to watch it. In fact, I remember if you watch my... uh, my, my uh, YouTube video about college where I'm in uh, New Orleans, I interviewed one of the women uh, who I met on Bourbon Street who went to uh, college uh, and uh, she was a lingerie football player. So, I mean, that's another way to get men to watch women play football is put them in lingerie. But as far as their basketball skills, I mean, most men don't want to watch women play basketball. And there obviously there's some men that will watch it. Maybe there's some women, but most men are into sports. I mean, they're into sports more than women are, and they want to watch men play basketball, not women. And so that's what determines how much basketball players can get paid. The fact that so many people want to watch men play basketball, the professional male basketball teams have a lot more money to pay their players. The professional women's team don't have anywhere near that kind of money because they can't sell the tickets, right? They can't get the advertising revenue because you have a smaller group of people uh, that are interested in, in women's basketball. So what would happen if the government said, oh, this is terrible. We need to have equal pay for equal work. You have to pay female basketball players the same as men, which, of course, first of all, not all male basketball players make the same amount of money. In fact, they all make different amounts of money because everybody negotiates their own contract. But maybe they should say on average, if we have a professional women's basketball team, that the average salary of those women has to equal the average salary of professional male basketball players. What would be the effect of that? Well, obviously, there would be no more professional basketball for women. It would basically outlaw it. There is no team, no professional uh, women's basketball team that could afford to pay the women what NBA teams pay their players, right? So they would it would basically outlaw it. So the only way you can have female professional basketball is if you allow women basketball players to be paid less than male basketball players. That's the only way it can happen, right? And and so that's probably what Steve Moore is trying to point out, right? The absurdity of this and, and, and talk about women's basketball and compare it to men's basketball. But, you know, then he gets crucified for it because it's politically incorrect to point this out. Now, of course, you know, if there was a woman who was actually good enough, because this is also part of the equal pay for equal work. Are female basketball players doing equal work to male basketball players? No. I mean, maybe they're putting in equal effort, but 
you know, work is not just about effort. It's about outcome, right? The men play basketball much better than the women, right? And that's another reason they're getting paid more. But believe me, if there was a woman out there who could play basketball as good as an NBA player, she would be on the team. I mean, I believe me, if there was a woman out there, any NBA team would love to put a woman on the roster. I mean, think of all the extra tickets. If you had, if there was some woman that was such a good basketball player that she could hang with a professional team, that she can actually play on an NBA team, everybody would want that woman. The reason that there is no woman playing on an NBA basketball team is none of them are good enough. That is the problem, right? And that's just part of the differences between men and women. So the fact that women basketball players earn less than male basketball players has nothing to do with discrimination and everything to do with the free market. In fact, somebody at the, I didn't even mention this, but at the Fed's press conference on Wednesday, he actually got a call. This was before Moore had withdrawn his nomination. Powell was asked specifically to comment on this issue if he thought women should get paid the same as men, which of course is irrelevant to the job of Fed chairman. I mean, you're having a conference, uh, you know, your press conference about your decision to raise interest rates and some reporters saying, should women get paid the same as men? Or do you think it's a problem? Or I think what she was referring to is Stephen Moore had mentioned that there were some problems that men were getting paid less or uh, relative to women. And, and this was a disruptive, but I mean, it was completely inappropriate question uh, for the forum and Powell, you know, rightly rejected it. But the whole reason it was there was to try to make uh, Stephen Moore look bad to try to say, oh, he's not for uh, equality. He's not for equal pay. Look, I am for the free market, right? The pay that you get in the free market is what's fair, Right. Anything that the government has to mandate, if the government has to force somebody to do something, then it's not fair because it's not free. What's free is what's fair. What you earn in a free market is what's fair, right? It's you're getting paid for your productivity and the market determines that. When the government comes in and tries to dictate an end that contradicts what the market would have done, that's what's unfair. But no, you have to pretend uh, that fairness comes from government and it comes from laws and regulations and the government has to enforce an outcome that otherwise wouldn't take place without even understanding. People don't even understand why women may be getting paid less money than men, right? There may be a valid marketplace reason for this disparity. But no one cares about that because that's not good politics. What's good politics is getting votes. And just like I said at the beginning of the podcast, how do you get the votes of the teachers? Promise them another day off. Well, how do you get women to vote for you? Promise to raise their pay. Promise to force their employers to pay them more money by saying you're being underpaid, you're being exploited, so vote for me and I will force your employer to pay you more money. And that sounds great until your employer no longer employs you at all, until women have a harder time getting a job or getting a job with the flexibility that they want. Because what the government is saying is, hey, maybe you may value non-monetary compensation more than money, but we're going to force you to take the money instead because the government has taken the decision out of your hands uh, because we want to make things fair. Well, the only way they can do that is to remove the freedom of choice. You know, And it's interesting because a lot of women on the left want to say, oh, I'm, I'm pro-choice, right? I'm pro-choice when it comes to abortions, whether or not to have an abortion, but they're not pro-choice in allowing women to choose how they want to be paid, allowing women to choose the terms of their own employment. They want to dictate to women those compensation packages. They want to, they want to take away the choice and have everything imposed on them by government. Now, many people would have thought that the price of gold would have sold off today, right, with a better-than-expected jobs number. That's normally what happened today. Not so. The price of gold was up about $8. I mean, it wasn't a huge gain. Uh, we closed around twelve seventy-eight. Silver up about $0.30. Cents. I mean, getting back some of what had been lost uh, in both gold and silver. Same thing with the dollar, right? People would have expected the dollar to rise today based on... Uh, 
a stronger jobs report. That's normally what happens. Instead, the dollar index was down 35.35 at 97.47. But again, the dollar index was at the upper end of the range. So we moved back in to the lower end of the range. And the yield curve actually flattened a bit because the yields were down. Right, the yield on the 10-year Treasury, the yield on the 30-year Treasury went down today, even though we got the stronger than expected jobs numbers. Now, that's probably one of the reasons that the stock market did not sell off today, because the bond market rallied. Had the bond market been nervous about today's jobs report, had we seen a backup in interest rates, then we probably would have seen a reversal of that morning rally in the stock market, and we may have closed negative today. Of course, the, the big action, I guess, uh, was not in the gold market, but in the cryptocurrency market, uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin now, uh, I think it got as high as about 5,800, uh, either earlier this morning or overnight. As I am recording this podcast, it's just slipped back below 5,700, but it still had a, a pretty good run. Uh, recently, there's been a lot of, I guess, renewed enthusiasm that this bear market that started from near 20,000 in Bitcoin is over. Uh, to me, I don't see anything in the charts that would indicate that that's the case. Uh, to me, we're still hanging out uh, below what used to be considered support or right around what used to be considered support. I think the fact that a lot of people are getting excited again is probably a sign that we're going to roll over. I think the fact that it's happening at the same time as this ridiculous campaign that I discussed yesterday uh, about dropping gold for Bitcoin, right? I think this is kind of one of the, you know, a last gasp desperation move uh, to try to, uh, you know, entice some gold buyers. Believe me, I think... Anybody, any gold buyer who wanted to buy Bitcoin has probably already bought it. I, you know, I think there's very few uh, gold buyers at this point uh, who would be buying Bitcoin. I mean, I think if they wanted to buy Bitcoin, they would already own Bitcoin. Um, they're not going to discover it based on this multi-million dollar national advertising campaign uh, that, uh, and, you know, this Greystone Bitcoin Trust is uh, is promoting. You know, one of the things that supposedly got a Bitcoin rallying today was a story out of Facebook. And I've already, you know, this is like an old news story, but I guess it was in the news again about Facebook, you know, getting ready to launch its own cryptocurrency, right? And it's going to be a stable cryptocurrency that's going to be backed by U.S. dollars. Uh, so um, in effect, I mean, that is a legitimate currency because it's backed by something. But of course, you know, it's backed by a fiat currency. So if you back your fiat cryptocurrency with a fiat uh, real currency, then you still don't have real backing. I mean, if Facebook backed its digital currency with gold, then it would be legitimate currency because the difference between currency and money, currency is a money substitute, but legitimate currency is backed by money, money being gold. In fact, you know, when you, you have a Federal Reserve note, right? That's, we call those dollars, but they're not really dollars. They're Federal Reserve notes. Uh, my father used to call them greenies, ferns sometimes, but they're Federal Reserve notes. And the reason they're notes is because they're promises to pay. And what did they used to promise to pay? Dollars. Well, what was the difference between a dollar and a Federal Reserve note? Well, a Federal Reserve note was an IOU for a dollar. Well, what was a dollar? Well, a dollar was a weight of gold. That's what the dollar was. It was a specific measure of gold. It was a, a unit of gold. And if you had a certain amount of gold, then that qualified to be a dollar. And so the gold dollar was the money. The Federal Reserve notes were currency that was in circulation as a money substitute that derived its value from the real money, the gold dollars that, that backed it up. Well, in 1971, right, when Nixon took us off the gold standard, our currency went from legitimate currency to, to fiat currency, right? Well, cryptocurrencies are digital fiat currencies, right? They're the same as uh, paper fiat currencies, except they're digital. What makes them a fiat currency is the fact that their their value comes from, from confidence. See, the people in the crypto community think that to be a fiat currency, you must be legal tender. Like a, a government must declare you legal tender. That's not true. I mean, what if a government decided to declare Bitcoin legal tender? Right? Would that then make it a, a fiat currency just because it was now declared legal tender? No, you don't. You don't have to be legal tender to be fiat. 
right? What's the difference between a fiat currency and a legitimate currency is a legitimate currency derives its value from the money backing it up, the gold, you know, that, that's behind it. It's backed by something real. But a fiat currency is backed by nothing, right? And that's why it's fiat. It's just let it be. It, it, there's nothing, it's all based on confidence. Now, at least when it comes to a um, legal tender currency like the dollar, what gives it value, other than the fact that it's legal tender, is that the U.S. government requires taxes to be paid in dollars. So if you're an American citizen and you don't want to go to jail, you need dollars. You have to earn dollars so that you can pay your taxes, right? So that, in a way, creates some type of value. Now, if you're not legal tender, then that value doesn't exist, right? But just because Bitcoin is not a legal tender because the government hasn't made Bitcoin uh, legal tender doesn't mean that Bitcoin is not fiat because that's exactly what it is because its value is not derived from anything intrinsic. Its value is derived by confidence, by, by pure faith. And so if Facebook had said, okay, you know, we're going to back our currency by, by gold, or, or, then, then it would be better. But now they're backing it by a, a, a fiat currency. So uh, it's, it's, you can't really say, well, that, that makes Facebook's cryptocurrency legitimate because it's actually backed by another piece of fiat. So if you back fiat with fiat, you really have, have no backing at all. But of course, what Facebook's uh, cryptocurrency will have is stability with respect to the dollar. Right. Because it'll always be worth whatever the dollar is. Right. And so it won't have the volatility that Bitcoin has. And that's what Facebook wants, because they actually want their digital currency to be a medium of exchange. Facebook actually wants um, Facebook users to transact in this new digital currency. Now, somehow the fact that it's a digital currency created some buying interest in the digital currencies that already exist, like Bitcoin. But in reality, if you think about it, this is bad news for Bitcoin. Because the idea, I mean, if you're buying Bitcoin, you should be thinking that Facebook would, would be using Bitcoin. That if there's going to be all these transactions taking place by Facebook users, well, they're supposed to be taking place in the future in Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is supposed to be the money of the future. That's what everybody is betting on. Well, Facebook is saying, well, no, we don't, we don't want to use Bitcoin. I mean, we're going to introduce our own cryptocurrency that's got nothing to do with Bitcoin. So the extent that all the Facebook users like a cryptocurrency and they start transacting in a cryptocurrency, they wouldn't be using Bitcoin, right? This should actually be a negative story for Bitcoin. And maybe it will be. I mean, maybe as it plays out, I mean, it'll, you know, you'll start to see more people realizing uh, the, the, uh, the negative factor. Uh, of, of this type of announcement because it shows that cryptocurrencies can evolve without Bitcoin. And if more and more companies like Facebook launch their own cryptocurrencies backed by dollars or yen or maybe somebody backs it by gold, then what value does Bitcoin itself have? None. <laughs> you know, and I mentioned this uh, when I talked about this ridiculous um, uh, campaign to uh, drop gold. We're in the commercial itself. And again, I forgot if I pointed this out, but, you know, the commercial shows people with bars of gold that are just enormous. I mean, these huge bars of gold, I mean, much bigger than any actual bar of gold would ever be. And they're in shopping carts and people are lugging them around. And it's like really, really hard. And the idea is that like, you know, gold is so big and clunky and cumbersome, like nobody has bars this big. I mean, these would be multi-million dollar bars if they were actually, you know, Manu you know, fabricated. I mean, most people, they can hold all their gold in their pocket and you wouldn't even know they had it, right? It's not like people are being weighed down by their gold. I mean, the, I, the one of the good things about gold is that you can get a lot of value in a very small space, right? Gold is very dense. Uh, and, and so it, it, it's not weighing anybody down, uh, you know, so they're trying to create this false imagery, you know, and obviously people that actually buy gold know this. So maybe only people who have never bought gold would look at these bars and think that's what gold is like, because gold is is nothing like that. But one of the things that the commercial actually says is that Bitcoin, unlike gold, actually has a utility. And I, I, I forgot to point this out, the irony of this. Because obviously they have it in reverse. Gold has all sorts of utility and Bitcoin has none, right? When you're talking about utility, value for a, a money, right? It's, 
what you can do with it other than use it as a medium of exchange. Because again, gold was gold became money because it was the most liquid commodity. But before it was money, it was a commodity. You need to be a commodity. You have to have valuable uses in order to become money. But the, the irony of it is that in order to mine Bitcoin, you need a computer, right? And the graphic cards that are required to, to run the programs to create Bitcoin themselves contain gold. I mean, each of these chips, I think there's like 30 or $40 worth of gold in there. So you can't make Bitcoins unless you have gold. That is one of the other utilities of gold. And of course, most people who are accessing their wallets for Bitcoin are using their smartphones. Well, every smartphone has gold inside it. And why do they have gold? Because gold is what works. I mean, they, they, if they could use a cheaper metal, they would, but they don't. They, they, they use gold because gold is the metal that makes it possible. Uh, and, and, and so the irony there is that without gold, you can't have Bitcoin. Yet supposedly gold has no utility, has no use, and you can't have any Bitcoin without gold. But, you know, the other problem with, with Bitcoin, and there's, I mean, there's so many, but they never, you know, think this out to the end. But the amount of energy that is required, not only to mine Bitcoin, but to, to, to make the whole system function is enormous, right? The, the cost of mining Bitcoin right now, right, average, I think it's about $5,000, or $5,000 per coin. So most of that is energy, right? Some of it is hardware, but most of the cost of mining, once you have your equipment, is the, the electricity to, to run the computers, right? It's very expensive. Obviously, too, there is a cost to mine gold. Of course, Bitcoin isn't really mined, right? Why do they call it mining? Because they want to they make believe it's like gold. They're not mining. You're not mining anything, right? You're, there's no mine there. Uh, you're solving a problem and you're using a lot of electricity to solve it. But when you mine gold, there is a lot of energy expensed in the mining of gold and the fabricating of gold. But once you get the gold out of the ground and you put it in a bar or a coin, that's it, right? The work is done. The gold is there forever, for all of eternity. You have the gold. Yes, it costs money to get it out of the ground, but once once that money is spent, that's it. You're done. That's not the same with Bitcoin, because not only do you have to use a lot of energy to create the Bitcoin, but you have to use a lot of energy to transact in it, right? In order to validate the transactions and, and make sure that nobody is spending a counterfeit Bitcoin and it's all legitimate, all these computers have to be online and they all use a lot of energy. And the reality is, if Bitcoin ever achieved the type of use that people who are buying it are betting on in the future, right? If it was actually used in commerce, which is never going to happen anyway, but if it did happen, right, the amount of energy that would be required to run all the computers all over the world that would make it possible to validate all these transactions the cost would be so prohibitively expensive that, I mean, we could not afford to devote that much of the world's energy. Maybe something like a third of all of the world's energy, maybe more, would have to be devoted simply to maintaining the Bitcoin network, which obviously the world could not afford. So the whole thing would collapse on its own if it actually could succeed, which it can't, right? <laughs> because nobody is using it in commerce now, it is being used purely as a speculative vehicle by people who don't know any better and who are, you know, getting conned in by the promoters, you know, to buy into it. But in any event, I am looking forward to my debate at the SALT conference coming up next week. I leave for Las Vegas on Tuesday. I think on Thursday is my event. And, and I do believe that this whole debate uh, was actually, you know, born from this campaign, this drop gold campaign, because they kind of added it late to the program. And they called me up and they said, hey, would you do this uh, this gold Bitcoin debate? Because up until then, they hadn't even called. I mean, I had normally, I, I, I've been at the SALT conference several times, normally speaking about, uh, you know, the economy, global investing. This is the first time I'm actually been invited there to talk about gold, specifically about gold, but only in the context of gold versus Bitcoin. And so it's not a coincidence, I think, that this, um, campaign is being launched, you know, basically a week before this debate at the SALT 
uh, between me and Barry Silbert, who is uh, the the individual behind this campaign. It's his company that has launched the uh, the Drop Gold campaign, and he is my opponent in this debate. So again, I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, maybe they think it's some kind of a setup, but I'm really looking forward to this debate. It's only going to be a half hour. Uh, so, you know, it'd be nice if we actually had more time to debate the topic, because I think it, it generally requires a little bit more time uh, to really get into the subject. But I guess uh, when it comes to salt, that's about all the time that they have. At least it's just me versus versus Barry. So it's not like we have a whole big panel discussion on that. And I've noticed looking at their agenda, too, they do have uh, quite a few other uh, speakers who are talking about cryptocurrency. So uh Obviously, not that many people who listen to the podcast are probably going to be in attendance. I'm not really sure if they um, if they ever post any videos of this. Maybe somebody might be in the audience taking taking a video. I don't know. But I will talk about it on the podcast. I'll probably end up doing some podcasts from Las Vegas because, again, I'm going to be in Las Vegas all next week, not only for the SALT conference, but for the money conference, the money show, uh, which starts a couple of days after the SALT conference ends. So I will be in Las Vegas for all of next week. Uh, so I will, you know, to the extent that I do podcasts, I'll be doing them from my hotel room. But I do look forward to seeing many of the people who listen to my podcast at the Money Show. I will be there. I will be at our booth several times. Uh, so make sure and stop by. We will also have some of the reps who work with me in the uh, in the LA office. <music>